You are now in sync with InfoSexing. Hello, and welcome to the 17th episode of the InfoSexing podcast, where we keep you in sync with the ever-changing world of information security. I'm your host, Matt Morris. And I'm your host, Nick Thomas. And give us 60 minutes, and we will keep you on top of the latest security news and help you gain CPEs while tuning in. InfoSexing is brought to you by VicTech. At VicTech, they pride themselves on teamwork, customer satisfaction, and providing customers with elite engineering and technology solutions. They aim to become an ever more dominant force in every area, product, or service they represent. Visit them on the web at VicTech.net. That's V-I-K-T-E-C-H dot net. InfoSec Sync is also brought to you by All Points. AllPoints provides a range of technology and mission-critical services within its core competencies that span systems engineering, information technology, cybersecurity, software development, as well as hardware and software integrated solutions. AllPoints, integrating personnel, technology, and services to exceed customer expectations. Visit them on the web at allpointsllc.com. And now, for the stories of the week, Ending March 20th, 2015. What's, What's up, InfoSec Sync fam? What's going on? You already know what time it is. So, uh, yeah, another exciting week in information security. A lot of stuff is happening and going on and all sorts of stuff. Um, let's get started. Windows 10. Yeah, it's like that. You guys slept on Windows for so long. So, um, those of you with long memories recall a large or a barrage of complaints in the run-up to Windows 8 launch that concerned the ability to install other operating systems, whether they be older versions of Windows or alternatives such as Linux or FreeBSD, on hardware that supported a Windows design or designed for Windows 8 logo. To get that logo. Hardware manufacturers had to fulfill a range of requirements for the systems they built, and one of those requirements had people worried. Windows 8 required that machines to support a feature called UEFI, Secure Boot. So Secure Boot protects against um, that, or it protects against anything that interferes with the boot process in order to inject itself into the operating system at a low level. So it prevents any of that from happening. When Secure Boot is enabled, the core components used to boot the machine must have correct cryptologic signatures, and the UEFI firmware verifies this before it lets the machine start. If the files have been tampered with, breaking their signature, the system will not boot. This is a very desirable security feature, but we know the paradigm. Usability and security, right? So uh, it has an issue for alternative operating systems. If, for example, you prefer to compile your own operating system, your boot files won't include the signature that Secure Boot will recognize and authorize, so you won't be able to boot your PC. However, Microsoft rules uh, for the design for Windows 8 logo included a solution to the problem um, they would cause. Microsoft also mandated that every system must have a user-accessible switch to turn Secure Boot off, thereby ensuring computers uh, would be compatible with other operating systems. Microsoft rules also required that users be able to add their own signatures and cryptographic certificates to the firmware so that they could still have the protection that Secure Boot provides while still having the freedom to compile their own software. 
This all seemed to work, and the concerns that Linux and other operating systems would be locked out um, proved unfounded. This time, however, they're not. At its Win HEC uh, hardware conference in Shenzhen, China, Microsoft talked about the hardware requirements for Windows 10. The precise final specs are not yet available, so all this is somewhat subject to change, uh, according to Ars Technica. But right now, Microsoft says that the switch to allow Secure Boot to be turned off is now optional. Hardware can be designed for Windows 10 and offer no way to opt out of the Secure Boot lockdown. The presentation is silent on whether OEMs can or should provide support for adding custom certificates. Should this stand, we can and savage OEMs building machines that will offer no easy way to boot uh, self-built operating systems or indeed any operating system that does not have the appropriate signatures. This does not cut out Linux entirely, however. There have been some collaborations to provide Linux boot software with the right set of signatures, and these should continue to work. But it will make that a lot less easy. Um, they've uh, Arsenica has asked Microsoft that the slides are accurate and OEMs will indeed be able to build machines that essentially lock out other operating systems, especially in the light of the visceral reaction to the original secure boot requirement. And uh, Ars Technica is still waiting a reply um, from Microsoft. So, what do you guys think about that? That's crazy. Isn't that crazy? What's he thinking, bit? You over there percolating? How much? How familiar are you guys with uh, Windows Ten? Um, I've kind of looked at it at, a, at a, a high level. Haven't really gotten hands on with it. I haven't. Uh, I was kind of reading about it, but I haven't actually used it yet. In fact, funny story is I just uh, lent a laptop. Upgrade to his um, car computer is uh, ECU. Really? Yeah. How'd that work out? I just I just gave it to him in the parking lot a couple hours ago. <laughs> oh wow! So that should be pretty interesting. So yeah, report back. <laughs> what happens with that? Uh, but we we uh, wish him good luck and Godspeed. So, um, do you want me to cover the next one since it's doing, having to do with a uh, cloud? Well, you are the cloud security evangelist. You already know. What? Yeah. All right, guys, let's get into this cloud. So, get this. Now you can put your keys in the cloud. Not just talking like encryption keys, but your house keys. That's that crazy. That is crazy. That's crazy. Would you want to do that, Matt? Uh, probably not. So... Um, earlier this year, a new type of mobile app blew the collective minds of many, including NBC News investigative re reporter Jeff Rawson. So using the camera of a smartphone, these applications can scan a house key, allowing it to be duplicated remotely. Rawson warned America that it could allow someone to digitally steal your house keys if you left them unattended by uploading photos and getting, a, uh, getting shipped a custom cut copy of your key. Of course... They could do the same thing with your house keys just by running them to a nearby hardware store, but, you know, that's crazy. So one of the contenders in the market is called KeyMe. No one is going to shoulder surf your house uh, house key with KeyMe. It requires photos of a key placed on a white background taken from four inches away, but 
Kimi is doing something that will further boggle the minds and will likely raise even more security concerns. Using the app, you can store copies of your keys on their server and download download them to a kiosk. So it's kind of like if you upload photos oh, okay. yeah. and you want to go somewhere and get them printed off. Now, instead of uploading photos, you're uploading a photo of your key and you're going to a kiosk once they get cut. That's crazy. I know. So the company has been rolling out kiosks across the country. As we can tell right now, um, Vic wants it to come to Costco. <laughs> I'm just going to put that out there. That's crazy. <laughs> He's going nuts right now. But um, the company has been rolling out kiosks across the country and has just expanded its its uh, fleet after inking a deal to place them at, at the Lowe's home improvement chain. And you can also share your keys with others via email, allowing them to make copies for themselves. <laughs> so the KeyMe app needs your keys in the clouds in order to feel uh, fulfilled. That's, there's like a little uh, picture. It's funny. We'll post a link up. So KeyMe supports 70% of car keys, according to the company, but not the newer smart keys, as well as most house, office, padlock, and mailbox keys. Um, though the company won't make copies of keys marked do not copy. Hold up. Can't you edit it, though? Like edit edit what the key says with, like, Photoshop? I don't see why not. Just saying. It is in the digital domain, yeah, right? Just saying. So um, this may be a little more secure than hiding a spare key under a rock, but if abused, it certainly has the potential to pose security risks not just to individuals but to companies as well. Kimi is offering one interesting security component at its kiosk, however. Um, cutting a copy of a cloud store key requires a scan of a, finger, a physical fingerprint. So now they're storing physical fin- fingerprint data, biometric data, at, at the thing, <laughs> at cool. the kiosk. That's crazy. So they say uh, they use uh, digital um, personas uh, URU fingerprint reader, which uh, produces data in ANSI. Inktis 378 format um, or INCITS 378 format. Uh, so that was uh, Greg Marsh, the CEO of Kimi, and this was in an email reply to Ars Technica. So it's the same uh, format the U.S. Um, the U.S. you know some some U.S. companies use. The data is briefly stored in memory and then sent encrypted to the API, which then stores it in a um, Postgres or PostgreSQL database. Um, and once a kiosk has authenticated itself, users then can authenticate themselves using the biometrics to allow the kiosk to store or retrieve digital keys for that user. The connection via the API itself is encrypted in transport using a public key infrastructure, PKI, and protected in storage at the database itself with an RS, RSA 2048-bit encryption. So the weakest point in Kimi's um, keychain, so to speak, is the part that happens to be in between the scanning and the kiosk. The only authentication needs to, um, or the only authentication required to get access to the share key in the first place is to access the email account it was sent to. The recipient is notified via email that a specific account has shared a key with them, and then they can choose to accept the key or ignore it. If they accept it, then a new digital key with the same geometry is added to their digital keychain, and then they can go to the kiosk and associate their fingerprint with that email address to gain access. So if you're going to email your house keys to someone, make sure their email account is on a server that supports TLS and has two-factor authentication. Otherwise, you might have some unexpected visitors. <laughs> hey, we're here. Yeah. That's crazy, isn't it? Hey, we're here. The Internet of Things. IoT, baby. <laughs> so uh, 
Yeah, I mean, uh, as far as cloud is concerned, yeah, they're storing it, and and you could call it a, a cloud, right? Um, they're storing it in a database that you can go to a kiosk that accesses that same database, so you can pull it down and get a copy of the key. But people need to be very careful. So for this next story, it's really weird because they're saying MRIs show our brains shutting down when we see security prompts. Do tell. I guess, you know, you see it and you're like, okay, click, yes, quick, real quick, right? Right. So ever feel like your eyes are glazing over when you see yet another security warning pop up on your monitor? In a first, scientists have used magnetic resonance imaging to measure a human brain's dramatic drop in attention that results when a computer user is subjected to just two security warnings in a short time. In a paper scheduled to be presented next month at the Association for Computing Machinery's CHI 2015 conference, researchers will present data that maps regions of the brains responsible for visual processing. The MRI images show a precipitous drop in visual processing after even one repeated exposure to a standard security warning and a large overall drop after 13 of them. Previously, such warning fatigue has been observed only indirectly, such as one study finding that only 14% of participants recognize content changes to confirmation dialog boxes or another that recorded users clicking through one half of all SSL warnings in less than two seconds. Wow, so nobody's even really looking at the prompts. That's that's typical user, though, you know? Click, 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 bang, click. done. Why isn't my computer working? Right. <laughs> Have you rebooted it? <laughs> <laughs> the inattention is the result of a phenomenon known as habituation, or the tendency for organisms' neural systems to show partial or complete cessations of responses to stimuli over repeated exposures. Such repetition... Such repetition suppression, or RS, has long been documented in everything from sea slugs to humans. By directly measuring RS in the brains of people exposed to computer security warnings, the scientists were then able to test more effective ways that software makers can alert people to potential risks. The paper is titled, quote, How Polymorphic Warnings Reduce Habituation in the Brain, Insights from an MRI Study, end quote. That's one of two to be presented at CHI 2015 that studies people's responses to security warnings. A second paper is titled, quote, Improving SSL Warnings, Comprehension and Adherence, end quote. Besides leading to potential improvements in user interfaces, the research may pave the way for better security education, training, and awareness, CETA programs, password use, and information security policy compliance. The scientists wrote... Users' habituation to security warnings is pervasive and is often attributed to users' carelessness and inattention. However, we demonstrate that habituation is largely obligatory as a result of how the brain processes familiar visual stimuli. A chief implication of our results is that because habituation occurs unconsciously at the neurobiological level, Interventions designed to encourage greater attention and vigilance on the part of users, such as SATA programs, are incomplete on their own. Their findings suggest that a complementary solution is to develop UI designs that are less susceptible to habituation. We showed that the polymorphic warning artifact developed in this study is one such effective design. Their results point to future research opportunities for security interventions that take into account the biology of the user. The experiment was conducted on 25 participants recruited from a university 
who were native English speakers. The subjects laid down on their backs on an MRI table and had a volume coil placed over their heads to allow imaging of the entire brain. The participants then viewed experimental images on a large monitor at the opening of the scanner. In all, each participant viewed a unique set of 560 images. A second experiment tracked participants' responses to security warnings in a more natural setting while using a laptop computer. To measure attention paid to a particular warning, the researchers analyzed users' mouse cursor movements along the X and Y and Z axes using a timestamp of each movement at a millisecond rate. The habituation response caused by humans' frequent exposure to warnings has been documented as long ago as 2006. Since then, numerous studies have supported what many people know intuitively. The more times a website, computer, or smartphone displays a warning, the harder it is to heed its urgent message. The fatigue sets off a vicious cycle in which many end users increasingly make poor, poorly informed security choices, and designers add more warnings to counteract the increased threats. Wow. The researcher team, made up of six scientists from Brigham Young University, BYU, the University of Pittsburgh, and Google, went on to test so-called polymorphic warnings. As their name suggests, polymorphic warnings change their colors, text, shapes, and other characteristics, rather than presenting the same static content each time. The MRI data showed reduced habituation to repeated warnings that changed. A second measurement using mouse tracking also showed reduced habituation from repeated warnings, and it also showed slower habituation. The findings could be seminal for makers of software and hardware alike as they search for new ways to steer users clear of everything from weak password choices to websites pushing malware. And here's a quote. Polymorphic warnings garner more attention over time due to the novelty of their changing appearance, the researchers wrote. Changing appearance of the warning reinvigorates attention, especially in brain regions that have been shown to demonstrate RS to exact repetitions of visual stimuli. For this reason, polymorphic warnings that continually change their appearance will slow the rate of habituation. Wow. So when I was doing, um, I guess, we all do help desk, you know, when we first start out or, you know, you you go to the, the person's computer, it's the same thing they did way, way back then. Click, click, click. And then, you know, things like, hey, why isn't my um, coffee holder sticking out? You know, it's like, no, man, that's the CD. That's the CD uh, tray. <laughs> they would say that's a cup holder, like a drink holder. But don't boom. Is that what they would say? Yeah. That's crazy. Yeah, there's all sorts of stuff um, that, that gets crazy. It's amazing how we can be... Uh tricked into doing things that we uh, don't know that we're even doing. Exactly. I guess um, everyone wants everything on demand, right? Now, now! Click, 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 click. Right. Did you know what you just clicked on? <laughs> right. That's why I think it's a little <laughs> bit better if uh, if you integrate some two-factor you know, authentication and even though that's for getting access to something, at the same time, the security warning is trying to make you aware of the implications of accessing a, uh, you know an information system so definitely very key very key so time to get into uh into our next story about hillary so how do you pronounce this chappaqua 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 so 
there's been a lot of controversy over how Hillary Clinton apparently uses a mail server running in her Chappaqua, New York home when she started her tenure as uh, Secretary of State. But if you want to know what she's using now, all you have to do is uh, <laughs> point your web browser at it. You'll get a login page for an OWA, Outlook Web Access, from an Exchange 2010 server. And so anyone who wants to do a brute force to guess their email password or simply take the server down with a denial of service is there. You shouldn't do this, but Ars Technica said, you know, it's there for the taking. Not good. This this is something that should not happen. So Clinton has probably changed her email address since the scandal began, particularly since the HDR22 um, account she used was widely published and became a magnet for all sorts of unwanted messages. And um, the hosted exchange server is certainly an upgrade from an original server uh, configuration. Until October 2010, based on a historic DNS record uh, viewed by Ars Technica, Clinton's email server was, in fact, a static IP address um, provided by uh, Optimum, which is uh, Cable Vision ISP. So, and it was registered to the Clinton's address. And not good. Again, not good. So the domain was registered on uh, January 13, 2009, just days before Clinton's confirmation as a Secretary of State. Um, but it did not gain a certificate for secure client communications or connections until March. The current certificate for ClintonEmail.com was issued by GoDaddy in 2013 as the original certificate was about to ex expire. So at some point... After the home server was dropped in 2010, the mail exchange record for ClintonEmail.com was moved to a hosted exchange server. Currently, that server appears to be running out of a data center in Huntsville, and I mean the server is using McAfee's MX Logic email filtering server, which screens for um, malware and spam. But uh, Ars Technica, again, we report the news. We didn't do any of this analysis. Ars Technica did the hard work. We're just giving you guys a little blurb on it. So the technical analysis of the network routing for mail.clintonemail.com places it somewhere on Internap's network connected via one of the company's private network access points. That makes it difficult to resolve exactly where the server is. The server itself may be in a data center in Atlanta. There are a couple of potential hazards posed by Clinton's hosted mail server. First, Outlook Web App is enabled and that offers an avenue for attackers to attempt to brute force their way into mail accounts by guessing passwords. The exchange servers offer some policy to block these sorts of password attacks, but using them runs the risk of denying users access at all. All someone has to do is basically shut down a user's email and enter bad passwords a few times, and that activates the lockout. So another problem is that it's not certain just how well patched the Exchange 2010 server um, running on a Microsoft Windows server instance really is. Based upon the server data, um, mail.clintonemail.com is running on an instance of Windows Server 2008 with a Internet Formation Server 7.5, both of which had numerous security vulnerabilities uncovered since the particular server was configured. On the bright side, since it's Windows, it's not vulnerable to heart bleed or shell shock. But, um, <laughs> so, um, yeah, and then I find that kind of uh, interesting. I think, you know, they, they had to configure this thing and get it up and running ASAP, right? So, yeah, I, I guess so. I I just don't, you know, everyone's asking why why she did that and then go with the government. But then I saw um, a report that even if she had went with the uh, government that they didn't keep 
data backed up anyway, and they didn't keep patches updated. Right. So it is very interesting to see this happen. It'll be very interesting to see what happens. Vic, do you have anything to uh, to say on this one? Well, obviously, it's not it's not Hillary Hillary Clinton that actually did it because I know um, from insider information that um, she, as of five years ago, didn't even know how to use a computer. She would like um, I think she was writing a book and she actually hand wrote the book and then had somebody like kind of transcribe it right or or put it in electronic format so, so um not i'm not bashing anybody but i doubt that she has some, she has an it department it. that actually handles that right and they should have actually said look hillary this is not secure we don't know if we want to configure it this way it may take you a little longer So, let's get into the next story. You guys ready? All right. So, OpenSSL warns of uh, two, um, if I could learn to drink my water, um, (laughs) two high-severity bugs, but no heart bleed. So, security mavens bracing for Thursday's schedule, disclosure of uh, high-severity vulnerabilities in the widely used OpenSSL crypto library need wait no longer it's a bug that allows end users to crash servers running one version of the software by sending data that's relatively easy to duplicate if the client connects to an open ssl 102 server and renegotiates it with an invalid signature algorithm extension a null pointer difference will occur an advisory published on thursday morning stated that this can be exploited in a dos attack against the server CVE 2015-0291, as a vulnerability is indexed, struck many people as anticlimactic, giving Monday, Monday's advisory that a high-severity bug would be announced. That triggered concerns of a critical bug along the lines of a highly critical heartbeat vulnerability that attackers use to extract passwords, private keys, and other confidential data from servers used for banking, shopping, and email. By comparison, Thursday's DOS bug can be only used to force a vulnerable server to reboot. The vulnerability was widely discussed earlier in the week in social media threads, um, and it was discovered by David Ramos of Stanford University, who agreed to withhold publishing proof-of-concept code that exploits the bug until servers administrators have had time to pass the security hole. Based on today's description of the bug, however, it is likely that it won't be hard for other people to independently develop the exploit. Well, that's good. So, uh, Freak gets reclassified what so thursday's advisory also classified reclassified um as high an advisory for freak which is a bug that calls many servers to offer 512-bit encryption keys that can be broken for about hundred dollars each um from there the attacker was free to carry out man-in-the-middle attacks on traffic between the vulnerable servers and end user the weak keys were a result of the 1990s export controls the clinton administration (laughs) (laughs) placed on strong cryptography. I just think it's kind of um, weird that they had the vulnerable mail server, but (laughs) they put this in place in 1990. So many engineers abandoned the regimen once the restrictions were dropped, but somehow the ciphers have managed to live on a select but significant number of end-user devices and servers. OpenSSL maintainers previously stated the severity of 2015-0204 as low. 
It was classified low because it was originally thought of that server RSA export cipher suite um, support was rare, Thursday advisory stated. A client was only vulnerable to a man-in-the-middle attack against a server which supports an RSA export cipher suite. Recent studies have shown that RSA cipher suite support is far too common. So administrators responsible for servers that rely on OpenSSL, whether for websites, email, VPNs, or other apps, should pay close attention to the advisory since it outlines 11 other vulnerabilities besides the DOS, the denial of service, and reclassified the freak weakness. So the rest of us can go about our business confident that none of them will come close to the severity of heart bleed. So that's crazy. They, they've reclassified it. So, um, yeah, uh, let's see. What's the next story we have here today? So this next article, Microsoft takes four years to recover privileged TLS certificate addresses. On Tuesday, ARS chronicled Microsoft's four to six week delay responding to a Finnish man who had obtained a Windows Live email address that allowed him to register unauthorized transport layer security certificates for the live.fi domain. Today comes the tale of a Belgian IT worker who has waited more than four years to return two similar addresses for the live.be domain. Microsoft's delay in securing the addresses such as hostmaster at live.fi and administrator at live.be has potential consequences for huge numbers of people. Browser-trusted certificate authorities, such as Komodo, grant unusually powerful privileges to people with such an address. All the account holders had to do was ask for a domain-validated TLS certificate for live.fi or live.be. Once they clicked a validation link, Komodo sent to their email addresses, the certificates were theirs. Komodo's automatic certificate application also works for addresses with the words admin, postmaster, and webmaster immediately to the left of the at sign and the domain name for which the certificate is being applied. It came as a surprise that Microsoft waited until this week to respond to the reporter, um, reportedly from January, that he came into possession of the hostmaster at live.fi address. One would have expected such addresses to be locked down tight to begin with. Once a breach of this policy was reported, it would have been reasonable to assume Microsoft security personnel would respond to it within a day or two, if not sooner. But the Belgian IT worker's email reveals a mind-boggling wait of more than four years of company officials to respond to his private and voluntary report he was sitting on the addresses admin at live.be and administrator at live.be. His name is Lorenz Vetz, and he proved his ownership of the privileged live.be addresses by using them to send emails to ARS. He also supplied ARS with the email thread, which seems to show Microsoft officials acknowledging. In November 2010, his report that he was in possession of two highly privileged addresses. The race is on to kill trust in a live.fi credential issued without authorization. On Tuesday night, a Microsoft spokesman issued the following statement. We identified and have fixed a misconfiguration that was allowing people to create accounts which are reserved for Microsoft's use. We have suspended the very small number of accounts which were created while we continue to investigate. Impacted customers will receive guidance for suspension recovery on their next login attempt. After the Finnish man used his address to obtain a TLS certificate for the live.fi domain, Microsoft warned users it could, use, it could be used in man-in-the-middle and phishing attacks. 
To foreclose any chance of abuse, Microsoft advised users to install an update that will prevent Internet Explorer from trusting the unauthorized credential. By leaving similar addresses unsecured, similar risk may have existed for years. So you're telling me that Internet Explorer is the only one that doesn't accept the certificate? Is that is that correct? I believe so, yes. Wow. So no love for Mozilla or Chrome. Mm-mm. Mm. So uh, is this uh, Premiere? Premiere? Yes. Yeah. Right? Premiere cyber attack could have exposed information for 11 million with an M, customers. Yes, big news this week. Big news. If, if I had lights, if you could see the lights in your car listening right now and home listening right now, the lights will be going off. This is breaking news, hot off the press. So healthcare provider um, Premier Blue Cross said that um, on Tuesday that uh, the identifying financial and medical information for millions of customers could have been revealed in a cyber attack. In a statement on their website, um, Primera said that issues related to their network have been resolved and the company is working to strengthen its security measures. The initial attack occurred on May 4, 2014, but the intrusion was not discovered until January 29th, according to Primera. The attack uh, potentially affects 11 million customers. About 6 million of these are of those live in Washington State where some customers are employed at companies like Amazon and Microsoft. That was from uh, Reuters. So from Premier's statement, this incident affected um, Premier Blue Cross, Premier Blue Cross Blue Shield of Alaska, and the affiliate brands such as was it Vivacity and the Connection Insurance and Solutions Incorporated. So they're investigated, or their investigation determined that the attackers may have gained unauthorized access to applicants and members information which could include member name date of birth email address address uh telephone number social security number member identification numbers bank account information claims information and clinical information this incident was uh also affected members of other blue cross blue shield plans who sought treatment in washington or alaska besides customers premier said that the email address bank account information and social security numbers for the business partners um, may have also been affected in the breach. So um, this kind of resonates with Anthem, right? With what happened with Anthem. Yeah, we remember that. That was bad. So personal data for about for 80 million of insurers, employees, and customers were exposed in the Premier breach. So far, the company said um, that no evidence that information was removed from their network or that information was stolen or used in a harmful way. Affected individuals will receive letters in the mail to prevent um, phishing attacks. Premier has warned customers not to reply to emails claiming to have information about the incident. The announcement of the Premier attack comes a week after Anthem said a breach of their network exposed information for as many as 80 million people. That breach was also discovered on, was also discovered on January 29th. <clears throat> wow, crazy. That's very crazy. So, what's next? So, HTTPS crippling freak exploit affects thousands of Android and iOS apps. Wow. So, so Vic, are you happy? We both got hit this time, Vic? We both got hit this time. I guess it doesn't discriminate. No. <laughs> Don't hate the player, hate the phone. <laughs> While almost all the attention paid to the HTTPS crippling freak vulnerability has focused on browsers, consider this. 
Thousands of Android and iOS apps, many with finance, shopping, and medical uses, are also vulnerable to the same exploit that decrypts passwords, credit card details, and other sensitive data sent between handsets and internet servers. Security researchers from FireEye recently examined the most popular apps on Google Play and the Apple App Store and found 1,999 titles that left users wide open to the encryption downgrade attack. Specifically, 1,228 Android apps with 1 million or more downloads were vulnerable, while 771 out of the top 14,079 iOS apps were susceptible. Vulnerable apps were those that used, or in the case of iOS, could use an affected crypto library and connected to servers that offered weak 512-bit encryption keys. The number of vulnerable apps would no doubt mushroom when analyzing slightly less popular titles. As an example, an attacker can use a freak attack against a popular shopping app to steal a user's login credential and credit card information. FireEye researchers Yulong Zhang, Zefong Shen, Hai Chu, and Tai Wai wrote in a blog post published Tuesday afternoon. Other sensitive apps include medical apps, productivity apps, and finance apps. The researchers provided the screenshots, which reveal the plain text data extracted from one of the vulnerable apps after it connected to its paired server. Freak is a remnant of the 1990s when the Clinton administration required weak keys to be used in any software or hardware that was exported out of the US. To comply, many software makers configured their products to offer 512-bit keys when used abroad. Many engineers abandoned the regimen once the restrictions were dropped, but a surprising number of HTTPS supporting web servers, estimated at 36% two weeks ago and 10% last week, continue to offer them. When these servers connect to vulnerable end-user devices, attackers with the ability to monitor a connection, say someone on a unsecured Wi-Fi network or a rogue employee at an internet service provider, they can capitalize on the vulnerability. By injecting malicious packets into the flow, the attacker can first cause the two parties to use a weak 512-bit encryption key while negotiating encrypted web sessions. The adversary can then collect some of the resulting exchange and use cloud-based computing from Amazon or other services to factor the website's underlying private key. From that point on, the attacker can masquerade as the official website, a coup that allows the data to be read or modified as it passes between the site and the end user over the unsecured network. While Apple has patched iOS 8.2 against Freak, the 771 App Store apps identified by FireEye remain vulnerable on iPhones and iPads that run earlier iOS versions. What's more, seven of the 771 apps are susceptible to freak attacks even when running the latest version. That's what FireEye said. The FireEye researchers didn't identify the vulnerable apps. Android and iOS users should contact specific app makers to find out if their wares are affected. To test if browsers are vulnerable. What's that? It said visit this page, but. Yeah, we can, we'll post the page up. So the SSL Labs page will test if uh, the servers offer a weak 512-bit uh, key. So definitely something you want to get on, you want to check out. Um, so really cool stuff. 
really good stuff coming out of that. And I'm, I'm now you have to be kind of uh, phone iOS agnostic, right? Mm-hmm. It's pretty much what, what you think looks the best at this stage and what you kind of, what feels good in your, in your hand and when you're using it and stuff like that. So, um, so let's uh, jump into the next story here. Windows 10 says hello to logging in with your face and the end of passwords. So they're using uh, face recognition. So Windows 10 will let you log into your PC, tablet, phone, or even website with nothing more than your finger or face by using a pair of new features called Windows Hello, um, which is codenamed Passport. So Windows Hello is a new integrated biometric system for passwordless authentication on Windows devices. Windows 10 users will be able to log in using their faces, their fingerprints, which is uh, already common on many laptops, or their eyeballs using iris uh, recognition. The system will support automatic sign-in simply by sitting in front of the PC, which is Kinect style, um, out of uh, the Xbox 360. So the goal is to um, kind of not have the need for passwords anymore, uh, which continue to be a weak link in computer security. Weak passwords and passwords shared across multiple systems continue to expose people and sites to attack, and biometrics are increasingly being promoted as a solution to the problem. Microsoft Video um, introducing Hello and Passport will be uh, linked on the website, but the same infrastructure for passwordless logins will also be available to third-party developers using a new framework that Microsoft had codenamed Passport. This will open up the same system of biometric logins to application networks and perhaps most importantly of all, websites. Um, Microsoft announced in February that it was joining the uh, Fast Identity Online, the FIDO Alliance. FIDO's uh, specification provides a standard way for sites to support biometric passwordless authentication. The same authentication hardware that would be usable with Hello will also be usable on FIDO. One of the sensitivities around the biometric systems is the storage of biometric data. In common with other systems such as Apple Touch ID, Hello and Passport store all biometric data locally on the system, never transmitting it across the network. The biometric authentication is handled entirely on the PC and is used to unlock cryptographic data, then used to secure, uh, securely log in to remote sites using the well-known principles of asymmetric cryptography. So, as with so many Windows features, Windows Hello and Passport both are dependent on uh, having the appropriate hardware. Face and iris recognition will need special cameras that have only started to show up on shipping systems. They will require infrared illumination and detection to ensure that they can't be trivially faked out using photographs. The Intel RealSense 3D camera, uh, found on a handful of new PCs, is the first hardware on the market that has the support. Conventional webcams don't do the job. While fingerprint readers are more common, they're typically found on enterprise-oriented machines rather than consumer ones. And presently, not a single Windows phone ships with a fingerprint sensor or fingerprint reader even though Windows 10 phones will also support Hello and Passport. Wider availability of this hardware will be invaluable in improving password security, and it appears that Windows 10 will be providing the necessary software support to make this technology mainstream. We just hope that OEMs do their part and build biometric devices into more systems. Cool stuff, right? Very cool. Yeah, so can't wait to, I may even uh, indulge and, and get a Windows phone. That'd be pretty cool. All right, InfoSec Sync fam, thanks so much for sticking with us through another uh, another episode here. Yeah, we got to cut it short today. We got to cut it short today, um, but don't worry, you're still getting them CP, CPEs in, so that's what matters. 
and uh, can't wait to come out here next week and uh, and and talk with you all again. again. So until then, stay cool and stay in stay in sync with, with InfoSec Sync. Sync.